Good morning, church. Good to see you. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. You might remember that uh, Jesus said that in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's our Lord praying about here? What is He asking from the Father? Is Jesus at the last moment trying to change the plan? Uh, he was supposed to go to the cross. Now he says, take this cup from me. Is he seeking to change Father's will? Or is he seeking to change his own will? Was there a danger that he might change? Uh, does the fate of all mankind hang in the balance here at this time? I think you probably know the answer. That's what we're going to get to today. Passover supper had been eaten. So we've been there. Several weeks we've been in that upper room. The discourse that he gives. Gives him instructions before he goes to the cross. He even says a high priestly prayer recorded in John 17 for all to see as he prayed for his glory. And he prayed for the disciples and he prayed for the church of all Time. That's us. And you know what? The guards are assembling. Sanhedrin is assembling. They're all getting together because they're going to arrest Jesus. It's a sacred moment now as Jesus will take his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. He will pray there and petitions the Father with what seems to be contradictory to the plan of God. We have to be awestruck over the scene of the agony that Christ has at this time before the cross comes. This very moment in the garden. We're stunned by this. You will be stunned as you look at this today. Every time you read this, we should be stunned by the greatest of all battles dealing with temptation. This was a tremendous battle. The greatest. God moves His Son to the cross. Satan is attempting to stop that. Because if Jesus dies on the cross, our sins are paid for. Do you think Satan wants that? So, we can see that this is a temptation to get Jesus to escape that cross. You remember, before Satan came with three temptations right at the very outset of Jesus' ministry in the desert. Each one of those temptations was designed to give Christ what was already rightfully His, but without the cross. Jesus knew why He was here. He came to die for our sins, to go to the cross. That's why He's here. Satan would love to keep him from that. So, now, in this scene that's before us today, Satan in unrevealed ways, we don't see him, as far as his name being pronounced here in this section, but the ways here that God has designed are too profound to understand. It's incredible, mysterious. But Satan has his hour. 
this is His hour. Verse 53 says that it's the hour of darkness. It's that time of darkness. The great sovereign purposes of God are going to come through at a determined time. This is one of the purposes. It's limited to be sure there, but it's determined that Satan can release all of his tempting efforts that, is, that he has to give the best shot that he can to tempt Jesus and for Jesus to be succumbed by him. To stop the Son of God from the cross. This is the greatest battle. This is where Jesus is at. What a war that he fought. Turns out that Satan is vanquished. Jesus comes out of the garden as the conquering hero that he is. Triumphant. And in a few hours, he'll go to the cross. So that's where we're at today. Let's turn to Luke 22. Let's stand in honor of God's Word. And let's read this section. Luke 22, starting at verse 39. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptations. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down began to pray. Say, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood, falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them, sleeping from sorrow. He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's too pray. Father, thank you for the gift of prayer. It's the way that we communicate with you. We have fellowship with you. Communion with you. That's what you desire. That's what we desire. It's like breathing. And Lord, as we look at Jesus praying, may we see a little glimpse here. This is far beyond the capacity that our brains can handle and the suffering that He had at this time of the morning hours and the darkness. And He prays before the cross. And Lord, may we have a little bit more understanding of how you and your plan works. It's all about your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Be seated. We call this blood, sweat, and tears. Now I know, if you go back to the 60s, you probably remember that there was a group called that. And as I saw all of these right here, I said, blood, sweat, and tears. And I thought, oh, I wasn't trying to do the, the group there. But that's what happened at this time of prayer. This is fervent, real, heartfelt prayer to the max. So in verse 39, he came out and proceeded. This was the custom. First thing that we look at here is the place of testing. A tremendous place of testing 
for the disciples, for Jesus especially. They had a long evening together, if you remember. They've been in the upper room. They have celebrated the Passover. We're in the last few hours now of Jesus and His teaching. Even this prayer here is about teaching. They finished this with Psalm 118. That's what they would always do. They'd go out singing. They went out singing a hymn, as one of the passages says. The last song of the Hallel. By the way, you know that word is universal? Hallel or Hallelujah. In every language they have that word, Hallelujah, which is praise the Lord. Hallel, praise. So they, that's what they did. They praised the Lord, the disciples did, and Jesus is singing, and they're singing, and He's right there with them as they're singing praise the Lord. What an amazing thing. So it says it was the custom. Uh, as long as Jesus and the disciples have been in Jerusalem this past week here, it's like Friday now, Friday morning, early Friday morning, they would always go back from Jerusalem as they went there every day and they go back up to the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane and they would uh, spend the night there. Then they'd proceed the next day to go down to Jerusalem, down the, the uh, ravine and back up the ravine into Jer Jerusalem, the city there. So that was the usual thing to do. It was a specific place that he went to uh, Garden of Gethsemane, probably owned by a, a particular family. Maybe the Jesus knew who they were, probably did. And they let them camp out there. And so they've been doing it. It is a place that Judas would have known about. And it's important that he knows because he, as he's betraying Jesus, he has to tell the Sanhedrin the religious leaders where he's at. Well, before he couldn't have told them because you remember that the disciples, two of them, were instructed to go prepare the Passover in a particular place where they didn't even know where it was at. They would see a man carrying water. Remember that? A few weeks back we talked about that. So that's what they looked for and that was the place where they prepared the Passover to have that night. Well, that's important because, see, Judas didn't know and none of the disciples knew until they were there. So Judas stayed there until Jesus said, go and do what you're going to do. Remember that? So he takes off. Now, he doesn't know exactly where they're going to be. He could have led them to this place. But he also knows that Jesus always goes up to the Garden of Gethsemane and spends the night there. So that's where we're at. It's getting near the time that he's going to be arrested, isn't it? Very close now. But there's one thing that has to happen before the arrest. What is it? This time of prayer. Really key. It's God's perfect timing. So Judas has been hidden from from where this is all at. And now he does know. He's got to know because he's got to go there. This place where they went is called Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane. It means oil press. Mount of Olives. Olive oil. That was one of the staples of the Israelites. Famous for the olive trees all throughout Israel and especially there at the Garden of Gethsemane. Oil press. You press to, and it's pressed and there's 
like grapes are stomped on, and here you have a press of olives, you know, and the juice comes out of there, or oil, I mean. And so that's really what it was about. There probably was olive press there, or olive presses. Who knows? But that would sound legitimate, wouldn't it? Well, did you know that Jesus was squeezed, wasn't He? He's being pressed as He is being tempted. It's the trial of His life here. This is an important place. It's profound, this text that we're in this morning. I can't say it enough. This is stunning, folks. We've heard it before. We've read it through. We say, that's amazing. But I want you to think, this is at the height of supernatural conflict. A battle and a struggle that we can understand in a little way because we battle and struggle against the enemy every day, don't we? But not like this. This is beyond just a natural battle. This is supernatural. It's stunning. The devil is the supernatural leader of the demons and the evil forces and he's fighting with the very Son of God. Satan doesn't have a chance. But at the same time, this conflict is incredible. The Lord uses this conflict to instruct His own disciples on how to face temptation and triumph. They didn't do too good this night, did they? But He's teaching them something. They'll need it later. So that's the first part that we deal with there. Let's move on to the second one. It's the prayer that's commanded. Jesus commands them to pray. As He says in 40, when He arrived at the place... He said to them, pray, why? That you may not enter into temptation. Do you know what that means? They're going to be tempted. He says, pray that you don't enter into it. It's going to happen. Pray that you may not literally be overwhelmed by the temptation and that it wouldn't be successful. Pray. Now you know Jesus is not convening a prayer meeting here. He's telling them to stop. He had uh, some of the disciples in one area, and then the three he invites up a little further, Peter, James, and John, and then he goes up a little further, a stone's throw, and he prays. So he's not getting together with them here. He just tells them to pray. He leaves them in that place. Jesus didn't even ask his disciples to pray for him. Did you notice that? He just prayed. Pray that temptation doesn't overtake you. That you would enter into it. Disciples were in danger of failing that night. They did. Three times Jesus he, he urged His disciples to pray. They'd go to sleep. He'd come back. <clears throat> they were sleeping again. He came back. They were sleeping again. They couldn't keep up the prayer. But I believe that temptation... Is specific. What temptation is it? Well, in the context of our Lord's words here, you take the circumstances in the light of their own ambition and their desire for greatness. Remember that night they have been arguing about who the greatest is. And Peter says, "I won't fail you, Lord. I'll always be with you." You know, I'm there. Peter was just boldly assuring that. They're all perceiving to be how great they are. To put the matter briefly, 
Peter's going to draw the sword. Stand up for the Lord there. Uh, the rest of the disciples with him are going to scatter. Denial of the Lord. Disciples are going to be tempted to resist the will of God. They've already been doing that. They resist the will of God for the Savior and for themselves rather than to submit to it. So there's a second one. Jesus prays or, or commands the prayer. We go to the third one. Verse 41 and 42. This is about the petition of removal. This is where the heart of this is at. And he withdrew from them, verse 41, by the stone's throw, and he knelt down and he began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Has this one ever puzzled you guys? Has me. Has anybody else ever been puzzled by this? Yeah, I think we all have. How does this work here? <laughs> Father, you know, this is the whole reason he's here. Uh, it says he, uh, as he withdrew them, a uh, stone's throw, a little bit of ways away, he knelt down. A lot of people would say, oh, that's how your position of prayer ought to be. We all need to, to kneel. Nothing wrong with that at all. But I will tell you, the custom of the Jews at that time was to pray standing up. Uh, even today, you go to Jerusalem, you have the, the Western Wall, and they put their prayers into the cracks of the rocks there, and they stand there praying, and of course they go through their uh, motions and such, but that's a normal way for them to pray. You can pray in a lot of ways. Jesus does something here that is pretty unusual. He prostrates himself totally on the ground, it says in Matthew 26, 39, he fell on his face. Mark 14, 33 to 35, he began to be very distressed and troubled and fell to the ground and began to pray. Falls to the ground. Stretches out. He's in agony. He's lying flat on the ground. He's in agony. He's crying out loud to the Lord about the agony of the struggle. I want you to catch that. We all think of the cross, of how much agony he suffered there physically. Well, he's suffering physically here too, but spiritually. It definitely becomes fair. Oh, we become aware of that. More than he can bear physically even. So he's prone on the ground. We have to be afflicted by this. He's afflicted. He's a man of sorrows, a man of grief. So we too must be afflicted. Are we afflicted by sin? Do you guys hate sin? Yeah. We hate it. We hate it when we sin. Oh Lord, I did it again. I hate this, Lord. I want to be right. I want to be being made holy. And we repent, we confess. Our problem is we don't feel the perfect hatred of sin. Jesus did. He felt the perfect hatred of sin like we never have. Even though we hate it, we've been distressed, we've been in agony too and afflicted, 
But he had a genuine, perfect hatred of sin. He is holy. So if we don't have a perfect hatred of sin, we do want to have a genuine hatred of sin though, don't we? That's why we can't understand this in its fullness. Because we have never felt the power of what sin does. We hate it. We regret it. We don't want to do it. But does it get us to the whole aspect of all the sin that is there? No, it doesn't. You know what would happen if it did? We would die. We couldn't take it. So, Jesus says this, verse 42, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. But yet not My will, but Yours be done. If You're willing, now in the Gospel of Mark, in every Gospel writer, Record, records this story in their account. They all do. That's how powerful, how meaningful this really is. Mark adds, Abba, Father. Intimate term. Daddy. Papa. That's the idea. An endearing term. Abba, Father. Why is he even asking this? If you're willing to remove this cup from me, isn't this somehow an indication of weakness? His character, is it weak here? The answer is absolutely not. See, this is a proof of his holy perfection. Is he seeking to change the Father's mind? No. Was there a real danger that Jesus might change his own mind? No. It was not Jesus who was in danger of changing his mind. Jesus was really learning from the Father here what his will was in its ultimate sense. Jesus is committed to do the Father's will. This whole plan, this whole purpose. It's at this point now. It's arrived. Jesus could have told the Father, I'm changing my mind on this. He has the right to have His life taken or not, right? Our Lord's submission to the Father's will here is never a matter that's in question. That's the whole point. If there's any question, it's what the Father's will here is. We would understand how serious all this is, Jesus is simply seeking one last reading, as it were, to what the Father's will was. Even at this, there was never really any doubt at all what is to happen. Jesus also, in what it accounts, is underscoring a very important point. There was no other way that this could be done. If there's any other way, Father, that this can be done, can we do it that way? You know what that's stressing to us? There's no other way for a man or a woman to be saved 
but through the Lord Jesus Christ and His substitutionary, sacrificial atonement for our sins as He took our place. He said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Me. God's plan requires the Son to die on the cross. But we get this, and it's still baffling. And we won't get to the ultimate of it because we're not God. But He says, remove the cup. He's greatly dreading this cup because He knows completely what it's really all about. He told some of the disciples like James and John and who wanted to be on the right and left of him as their mother had asked that to Jesus. He says, that's not for me to give. Can you drink this cup? Could they drink that cup? What's in this cup that he dreads so much? As I say that, I know what's in my cup. And it's okay. There might be some dregs at the bottom. Not sure. (laughs) And in prophecy, that's what comes out too. He dreaded the cup, if possible. Why is it such a dreaded thing? What is this cup? Let's go to Old Testament prophecy that talks about the cup. Psalm 75, I think about verse 10. Psalm 75, verse 10. 76, I'm sorry. 75, verse 6. It's 76. 75, verse 6. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to reverse that and take it to 8. Okay. 75-8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord. And the wine foams. It is well mixed and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. It's the hand of the Lord, just like wine and it's foaming. It's well mixed. He pours it out. And who does He pour it out on? All the unrighteous, wicked, evil people who did not trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it will be poured out upon all believers. This is the judgment of God. This is the wrath of God. It is now coming to Jesus' senses that the very wrath of God that was even intended for all the sinners is coming out on Him. When He's at the cross, that's what will happen. And it's very real to Him right now. He feels it. He senses it. As a matter of fact, in Matthew and Mark, it says he's at the point of death. 
This temptation brings him to the very point of death right there. Satan is saying, you don't have to go through this. You know, this is all yours anyway. I tried to give you the kingdom before. You don't have to go through this. You don't have to go through the cross. Go to Isaiah 51, 17. Hope I don't have a typo here, Penny. No. <laughs> We're good. I do those every once in a while. I'm not the world's greatest typer, that's for sure. I need to... Uh, did I say Isaiah, right? Isaiah 51. 51, 17. See, I can't even talk and turn pages at the same time. <laughs> okay. What do we have here? Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of His anger. The chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. The cup. The cup not only to the nations, but to Israel, to Jerusalem. They are going to drink it to its dregs. They're going to drink from the cup of wrath to its ultimate. It'll take eternity to drink the rest of that cup down to the dregs. Eternal judgment upon them. Jeremiah 25.15 Another prophet. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. The cup, the sword, judgment. There will come a time when there will be ultimate judgment on mankind. The nations, the individuals. The cup of wrath. The cup of judgment. The cup of God's wrath poured out on sinners. The ones who are unrighteous. Jesus' agony was due to come at the cross. It's looming before Him. So the agony has already started. He was not in agony because He would be forsaken by men. The disciples will even leave Him. The nation has turned against Him. And of course, the religious leaders have always been against Him. He would be forsaken and smitten by God. That's the thought. Isaiah 53 makes that very clear. The Father was pleased to crush Him for the iniquities that were put on Him. He's dreading suffering. The anticipation of this that's going to happen to bear the sins. Dennis Houghton. You see, I'm bad. 
to bear the sins of all of you. Of all the church, of all the believers of all time, He will bear that sins, the nature of it, the wrath of God, which we so much deserve. Jesus did it, didn't He? He knew He was going to take on my sin nature, your sin nature, just that, if it was just us. Can you imagine how much that would be? There's no way that I could even imagine all of my sins from the time of my birth to right now that would come upon me and I would see the depth of how bad those sins are that affront the perfect holiness of God. You see, He's absolutely holy. And one little sin would be enough to send a person to hell forever in absolute wrath. He took on sin nature. Can you imagine taking on the sin of His people, of all the elect? Can you imagine taking that on? We can't, we don't even want to see even one of our sins, do we? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We should hate sin more and more. As we see this example here, We'll never have a perfect hatred of it, but this verse right here should make us recall what was done. We're all familiar with this. He made Him, God the Father, made Christ, who knew no sin, perfectly innocent, to be sin on our behalf. He took on our sin. He bore it. So why? That we might become the righteousness of God in Him, in Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ. That's the only reason why we can stand and pray to our God and worship our God is because the righteousness has been given to us. Otherwise, we would have no righteousness. We would never have a right to stand before a holy, awesome God, would we? Christ traded. He gave His righteousness, although He remained righteous, gave His righteousness, put it on us, and took our sin and put it on Him to destroy it. But oh, how that must have felt. And He's getting a real sense of this. Jesus bore the wrath of God, the cup, took our place so that it would not be necessary for us to ever, ever drink that cup. If you're saved, you'll never have anything to do with drinking the cup of God's wrath. It's only upon the people who have not trusted in Him. And it is for them completely. They'll all drink to the dregs. But you see, Christ went to the dregs. He drunk the dregs. The whole cup for us though, our sins, were paid for. He died in our place. Those who reject Christ must bear the wrath of God. It will take eternity. Do you want, you know that there is nothing more terrifying 
wrath of God. Nothing worse, nothing more fearful than the very wrath of God. The divine fury unleashed with all of His anger, a righteous, perfect anger against sin. And we say, well, I can't imagine that He would send anybody to hell. You know, most people are pretty good. You know, maybe the murderers, or maybe, maybe He will save them at the end or, you know, later after that. People who say that have no idea of God's holiness. See, God cannot put up with one little white lie because He's perfect. God is angry. He's angry with the wicked every day, Scripture says. Let's talk about the unbeliever. Full cup of divine fury. You know what? Jesus didn't want didn't want this cup of wrath. You know what it is? The Father, for the first time ever, is going to forsake Him. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? Father, do not forsake me. That's, that's the most fearful thing, that God would turn His back on the unbeliever. He turns his back at that moment on the cross on his son, his only son. He had to forsake him at that point for us. It's incredible. This evening, and this whole evening, and now into the morning, into the wee hours, darkness. This is where he's at. He's in absolute agony. I'm just trying to get our picture of this and feel it in some way, even though we perfectly can't feel it. I'll tell you how bad it was. The heavens, God had to send an angel to him. Luke 22. See, Jesus could have cried down a legion of angels to him. Look at this in verse 43. This is provision from heaven. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, look at this, strengthening him. The angel appeared. The angel is an affirmation that the Father cared for him. Even though he's looking at this and he's realizing that the Father will forsake him as the wrath and the cup is poured upon him in a matter of hours. In the midst of the prayer, there is a divine restoration. There's a supernatural restoration. It's not at the end of the prayer. It's in the middle of the prayer somewhere. Verse 43 and 44, it uh, looks there to kind of seem to be in reversed order. One would tend to think that Jesus should have been strengthened by an angel from heaven at the end of the time that he's praying, right? That's happened before. And you've seen uh, like Elijah who was strengthened by an angel at the end of all the suffering that he had gone through. But here, it's in the middle of the prayer. How is it that an angel could even strengthen Jesus? Jesus is God. An angel strengthening him? How could that be? Can you imagine yourself 
trying to strengthen Jesus? Look at Hebrews 1, 14. God uses angels. Here's one of the reasons He uses them. This is encouraging. 1.14 Are they not all ministering spirits? Serving? Sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. They render service to who? Us. The believers. The church. The ones who inherit salvation. The angels do that. He sends an angel to his son. Definitely has something to do with the physical sense, because it is physically happening here to him, as well as spiritual. We go to number five, the passion of Jesus. Verse 44. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. Now it could be that he's already been in agony and praying fervently, and I, I would definitely say, yeah, that'd be true. But the angels come there and strengthen him. And then it says, he was in agony, he's praying very fervently, and his sweat becomes like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now that could have happened, I don't want to stress this too much and make it mean something that it's not, but if the angel's coming somewhere in the middle or maybe before he quits praying, it means he had to be strengthened to keep on praying. Uh, see, he's come to this point in, in the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark talk about that he was at the point of death. He was at the point of death. Even before he even started praying. The agony is hitting him. Continues with agony, but he is strengthened enough. As he, you know, the disciples are sorrowful and they're sleeping. Jesus is sorrowful to the point of death. Sorrow was the cause of the disciples' drowsiness. Verse 45. Luke is a doctor. And he's emphasizing certain words here that show that he knows what's going on as he's told about this. Of course, the Holy Spirit is inspiring him, but he's also being used as a doctor. Uh, says, being in agony. He's praying very fervently. Agony. The word there is agon. Agonizomai. It means like to be in combat to the point of death. It means one who would be a runner who trains every day, training for uh, the marathon. Hard. It's agonizing to run that race. To train for it is agonizing. That's the verb that's put it there. Uh, Jesus has been strengthened. Doctor picks that up. Agony is so great that what happens? Sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. 
Luke goes, well, I know what that is. Jesus is virtually at the point of death. He's got to finish this time of prayer to be prepared for what is coming, doesn't He? I believe that it's possible that He could have died. He has so much agony here and sweat. is It's like blood falling down to the ground from Him. If He would have died there in Gethsemane, He doesn't die on the cross. Well, it's not God's plan. It's not going to happen. But this is real. He's sorrowful to the point of death. I believe the angel had given him sustainability through this night of prayer, this hour of prayer, or when it is. That reminds me of a song, Sweet Hour of Prayer. It is sweet when we go through trials, isn't it? We go to the one that we know that can take care of us. It says here, he's praying very, in agony, praying very fervently. That word there is ectinase. It's a medical term. It means to stretch the muscles out to the max. As far as you can take your muscles, as far as the capability is concerned of your muscles, they go to as far as they can go fervent. He's taken his prayer as far as it can go. You're talking about real, true prayer. What would have happened to me? I would have slept. How often do I go to sleep pray? But I'd rather do that than not anything else or thinking wrong thoughts, right? I uh, but at the same time, there are other times that I pray that I don't go to sleep, but we've all done that, haven't we? But, you know, earnest, earnest prayer. I want to say that the suffering of our Lord was not just in His humanity. There's the aspect that this is a supernatural suffering that is going on. He needed supernatural strengthening. He got it. He supernaturally suffered. You know what? For us to even think that we could come close to understanding the depth of this would be doing great injustice to what He really did here. Now that sweat like blood. You remember in uh, Genesis where Adam and Eve sinned and then there were consequences to that sin? Talked about by the sweat of the brow you will work. Right? We all know what that's like, don't we? That was a curse. Man, Adam and Eve were not created to even have sweat. The system was all perfect. But do you you know what the curse of sin is? It took all the great things that God did and it twisted and perverted things and now life for man was never 
what Adam and Eve had seen and practiced and experienced in that garden before sin, what a situation it was that instantly, all of a sudden, things in their bodies and things around them just changed drastically. And it's like, whoa, what is this? Whoa, I've never had this before. <laughs> you think of other bodily functions that happen, and, and they go, whoa. I mean, everything changed drastically, and it's still with man. Sin really messed things up, didn't it? We look to the day when all that will be done, and glory will be like that, only much better than even Adam and Eve. Amen. Yes. So, it reminds me of the curse of sin, and here we have Jesus, who is the man, who is God, and he takes on flesh like, like us and he experiences things that he'd never experienced before throughout his life that he lived here. He experienced what we did. Sadness, sorrow, grief, sweat. But in this case, as we look at the passion here, the intensity, the concentration that is involved here it shows up in a physical sense. And it's sweat, and the word there for sweat is hydros, or better in the Greek, I'll say hydros. You get it? Hydro. Water. Sweat. Drops of blood. And here's where I think the doctor aspect of Luke kicks in. He uses the word thomboi, hymatos. What's that mean? Well, it's a thrombosis. It's a medical term. You ever heard of that? It's a very dangerous condition that can kill. It's known as hematidrosis. The effusion of blood in one's perspiration caused by capillaries breaking bleeding out through the skin and mixed with the blood or the, the sweat. And so, I know it says here it's like blood and it could be, uh, in that sense, uh, a metaphor, a simile, you know, it's whatever it was, this is how intense this was. But you know what? I'm going to go with a literal sense here. Um, if I'm wrong, well, then I'll stand beside a lot of other great theologians down through the years. It, what it is, is we're trying to get the emphasis of how bad this was. It brought him to the threshold of death. This could have killed him. He's striving so hard with such agony, he starts to shed blood out of his arms, out of his face. He's sweating. Blood mingling sweat. He's laying prone on the ground. This is the hour of the power of darkness. God allowed this. God allowed His Son to go through such an immense, intense situation. Jesus won the war. Satan tried to keep Him from the cross. It didn't happen, did it? Father, if possible, 
that got up off the ground. He's bloody. He came to the disciples with his blood-soaked clothes. Found them sleeping from sorrow. So we know that in the other Gospels it's reported three times. Luke has a short session here, but he emphasized some things that they didn't. It's good to have all of those. We don't have the time to go through a, a harmony of the Gospels here on that story, but related a few of those. In verse 46, get ready to wind this down now. He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why are they to pray? Are they to pray for Him? No, it's about the temptation. What kind of temptation? The temptation that's going to come. And they're going to fail. It's induced by sorrow here. They, they had sorrow as they went to sleep. And you know, sometimes you ever gotten into a very depressed mode that all you want to do is just go to sleep. It's been a long night too. Long day, Passover day, celebration. I mean, it's in the wee hours of the morning. Wouldn't you two go to sleep? Yeah. Find them to sleep again. Lateness of the hour. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Mark 14, 38. They wanted desperately to stay awake. None of them could. They were to keep watch. They couldn't. Their sorrow uh, is there. It's just too much for them. They gave way to it. You know what? The disciples knew they were going to scatter. It would bring a little bit of sorrow, wouldn't it? It's going to be a denial of Him. Wouldn't that bring a lot of sorrow? They got to a point of total exhaustion. Total collapse here. They were urged one final time to awaken, to arise, to pray. And there was no time at the, the third time. Because you see, Judas had now arrived along with a group of soldiers, heavily armed, coming on Jesus just like he's a dangerous criminal. That's what we talked about last week numbered with transgressors. They arrest him like he's the most wicked man on earth. And here he was, sweating drops of blood. Intense. Because he took your sin. Because he was going to take my sin. How do we apply this briefly? What does this mean for us? What makes us look at Christ even more, doesn't it? What really went on well, here's the idea. First, uh, suffering. Jesus was not only in His humanity struggling and physical agonies of the cross. You can imagine how that would be, but His deity here is involved. His humanity and deity. He's man. He's God. 100%. Inseparably coming to grips, though, with the awesome agony of the cross. Secondly, the measure of Christ's agony is the measure of man's sinfulness. Do you catch that? As much as our sinfulness is, that's how much agony He had. I can't imagine it. Thirdly, the measure of Christ's agony in Gethsemane is the measure of suffering which Christ endured. 
bearing the wrath of God. He felt that and then He would take it on fully at the cross. Fourthly, the measure of Christ's agony at Gethsemane. And you'll catch this one. It's the measure of His love. As much agony as He had, that shows you the measure of love of God for the sinners that He came to die for so that they would live. The songwriter put it well when he said, What wondrous love is this! Amazing love! It's indeed amazing love, isn't it? And that caused the Son of God to voluntarily pursue the path of pain, which we have looked here, all the way now on up to the cross. That was what He did. Let's pray. Father, great God, may we have a little bit more knowledge in our own minds and our hearts. The pain, the agony, the suffering that Jesus knew that was going to come upon Him. The wrath of God who was angry at the sin. The wrath of God was satisfied by the payment of Jesus for us. We are overwhelmed, Lord, what Jesus went through at this time, through the arrest and through the time of the cross. Sunday was coming. The resurrection. And Lord, that's our great hope. Because that proves to us and it justifies us knowing full well that our sin was promptly paid for and never to be paid for again. It was done there, all at the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you. We glorify your name. And as we go out of here today, Lord, may we take this message of the gospel, which is at the heart of all of this, even during the suffering. May we take this to the lost who are in need for it, for we don't want them to experience that cup. The cup that goes down all the way to the dregs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.